This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's a privilege and a pleasure to have former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman with me today. Thanks, Secretary Lehman, for being with me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you and a pleasure to be here back at CSIS, which, as you know, uh, was formative experiences in my, my early years. Uh, I want to get to that because I just, um, I so loved your new book, and the reason I wanted to have you on our podcast is you've written a new book, and you've written several books, but this one is called Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea. I bought it retail, and I read it cover to cover. <laughs> I want you to know. They'll God be bless me. you. <laughs> and I want everyone who's listening to go out and buy it. It's still, in, we're, I'm, we're doing this before the holidays, so if you, you haven't gotten a Christmas present yet, this would be an excellent stocking stuffer, and I recommend it. And so I really love the book. I thought it was important to have you on because, and it's important for us to get this podcast out before the holidays, because I think the book is not only a historic book, but I also think has important lessons for the United States today. And I, I know that, I suspect those are some of the reasons you, you wrote the book. So first tell us, why did you write this book? Well, first, thanks for those, uh, those nice words, and you're welcome to keep talking. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, uh, the reason I wrote the book is it's a great story, and it's a timely story, because it t tells the story of how, even in times of bitter political division and really difficult times in the political situation in Washington, that we still, as a nation, are capable of coming together to do the really important national strategic initiatives, and not just continue on a given course, but even when it takes a major change of direction, we were able on a bipartisan basis uh, to completely shift the direction of uh, what had been a very declining uh, deterrence posture in NATO to change direction and uh, uh, take advantage of the advantages that NATO had geographically, culturally, economically, and militarily to bring the Cold War to an end without a shot being fired. That's a great story. It goes against the common wisdom of the times that, uh, uh, that it really was all Mr. Gorbachev and that Reagan had only a very minor role, and the Navy, of course, had no specific role. So uh, none of that was true. The true story is really exciting and uh, should carry a lot of lessons for the current, uh, the current day. So that's why I wrote it. All right, so just take me back. So I'm, I'm barely old enough to remember all this, but just remind us about where, when you, you became Secretary of Navy in 1981. Yes. So just let's just remind everybody, for those who are probably under the age of 50, <laughs> what, where were we? What, what had happened? Because there, in essence, had been a, um, you, you describe it in the book, there had been sort of a series of sort of defense buildups and then drops. And then there was, sort of, and so where were we at the time when you came in 1981? What, 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 what trajectory, trajectory were we on? What was some of the mindset? What were some of the what were some of the received wisdom that we had at the time? Because you talk about how you broke through a whole series of different kinds of received wisdom. So please. yes, well, uh, the, the 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 problem uh, at of the times was that we had got 
bogged down in Southeast Asia, in uh, Vietnam, uh, which soaked up the, the budgets and attention of the national security community and the military for 20 years. department for 20 years, in effect. And as a result, the, and, and the, the uh, resulting defeat had demoralized the confidence that the uh, West had in its strategy, which after World War II had been a very successful one of containing what was a, a messianic uh, ideology in the Soviet communism that uh, they truly believed that they were on the march. And Khrushchev the said they would bury us. Exactly. And tide of history would determine the outcome. And of they would the beat defeat. us. And they would defeat us. Ultimately, they believed there had to be a final war uh, uh, for the final destruction of capitalism. And all this sounds kind of... Uh, it sounds quaint now, quaint. <laughs> but it was real. It was very real. It was real. really real. It was real, and uh, and had, it had, as a result uh, of, of the combination of factors that undermined Western confidence, the Soviets uh, under Brezhnev were very much on the move, uh, so much so that they openly declared the Brezhnev Doctrine, which was that the Soviet Union and communism had the right to go into and uh, uh, go into any uh, country where communism was being threatened. Afghanistan. Afghanistan. They moved into Afghanistan. They moved in in a big way into Latin America, Central America, uh, the wars of national liberation in Africa. And they, uh, they really believed that this was coming to be the final triumph of, uh, of communism. And as you know, we were involved in, in countering uh, the Sandinistas in uh, the various uh, attempts in Angola and West Africa and so forth, uh, where, where the Soviet Union was very actively pursuing major conflict with the West. And unfortunately, in the most senior councils of NATO, the same, the same phenomenon had been gradually bringing about a kind of a, of a defeatism, a, a pessimism that, that we could hold back the growing tides of, of communist intrusion around, uh, around the world. And, and part of this was because the way NATO had been set up the NATO command structure was such that it was primarily army. The primarily f primary focus was on the army balance, the land balance in Central Europe. The Fulda Gap. The Fulda Gap. The Throw North Wades. Right. The North German Plain. The fact that the Soviets maintained about 180 active divisions of, of armor and uh, uh, mobile infantry whereas NATO could never mount more than about 40 divisions. And, uh, and so NATO compensated for this, theoretically, with an inherently unbelievable uh, strategy or defense strategy. They, their calculations were that, you know, the optimists said we might be able to hold them, hold the Soviets conventionally from getting to the English Channel in maybe four weeks, the pessimists one week, and the answer was, well, then we would counter that with tactical nuclear weapons. We would go nuclear first use. Well, this was, this was just a non-believable strategy because, of course, the weapons we called 
tactical nuclear weapons, the Soviets viewed rightly as strategic weapons because many of them would fall in the Western Soviet military districts. And, uh, and the Soviets did not believe, nor did most thinking Americans, that any American president, if the Soviets invaded across Western Europe and then stopped and said, let's negotiate, that uh, any American president or any NATO council would approve countering that with using first use of nuclear weapons. So we had a deep fissure in the credibility of what NATO defense really was based on, and that underlay the optimism of Brezhnev and the Soviet Union that tide was really running in their direction and that history was on their side. So, and yet one of the original centers of people saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Was right here at CSIS, then part of Georgetown University, where you had thinkers like Arlie Burke and Dick Allen and Robert Strazupe and Henry Kissinger, often here, Sam Huntington from Harvard. And CSIS organized a, a naval study group, in effect, of which I was a member and the people I mentioned were, were members. And we used to meet at the old headquarters there at 18th and K. And basically, we were all saying, whoa, what's going on here? Don't people look at a map? We've got, we, NATO, have all of the geographic advantages. Geography counts. And the Soviet Union is a landlocked empire, most of it above the 50th parallel, lousy agricultural land. People don't realize that all during the Cold War, we provided, we, the West, and mainly the United States, provided 85% of the food uh, for the Soviet Union. And they had no reliable warm water ports. They were landlocked. And NATO included the greatest naval powers, of which the Soviet Union historically had not been one. And so we had the power to use the seas to counter their strength on the land. And on a conventional basis, we, we, we were... We've, we all felt, and, and it wasn't in this room, but in the old headquarters, yeah. uh, we were unanimous that this, this would enable NATO to truly counterbalance and checkmate this looming overhang of, uh, of uh, conventional army power on, on the continent by a a defense strategy based not on the use of nuclear weapons, which was inherently incredible, uh, and using naval power and air power to project uh, a totally reliable counter to any attempt by the Soviet Union to use their great overhang of conventional army forces in, in Western Europe. And so more and more we thought this through and worked through what it would cost to, to, to rebuild the alliance's naval power, and primarily the U.S. naval power, but not only, but the Royal Navy and the Dutch Navy, the Norwegian Navy, so that we were, would be able to easily take back control of command of the seas. 
and, and to enable and make it clear to the Soviets that this totally checkmated any attempt to use land conventional power to the disadvantage of the free world. So is this like Alfred Thayer Mahan? Yes. Who is Alfred Thayer Mahan? Well, of... Alfred Thayer Mahan was, was a, 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 the theorist uh, who became really one of the great naval uh, thinkers. His book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, was, was seminal in the thinking of uh, leaders Teddy around Roosevelt. the world, Teddy, especially Teddy Roosevelt, but uh, Jackie Fisher in the UK and uh, other naval thinkers and leaders. And his view was that the United States must, with its allies, have command of the seas. He was the guy who first came up with that, that term. And in his day, it was the ability to uh, defeat and be able to train and demonstrate that they would be able to defeat any possible combination of enemies uh, that could threaten the United States. And, of course, this was before there was a NATO alliance. But this was in post-war period. It was not to be able to engage the fleets of our adversaries, but to be able to command the seas as he had written was so important through history and use that command of the seas to counter the attempts of the the challenging power of the Soviet Union. So basically we spent a lot of time thinking through and and fleshing out the strategy by not you know in a armchair strategist sense but in a real time we had lots of people I was a naval aviator. Uh, Arlie Burke, obviously, was one of the most experienced naval commanders and ship chief drivers. Of, chief of naval he was chief of naval operations, and he was a great war fighter in, in World War II. Uh, but there were many the others battle, that we brought of, in. The Battle of La- Lady Gulf. Lady yeah. Gulf. Mm-hmm. And we, we drew on a, a, a lot of active duty people, drew on the, the Naval War College at uh, Newport, and, and so attracted the interest of, of uh, Democrats and Republicans, particularly Scoop Jackson on the Democratic side, John Stennis, and others in the House uh, who started attending meetings, and, and Republicans, uh, Ronald Reagan became very interested, George Bush uh, became a George H.W. Bush, I hasten to point out. And so it started to be a major part of the political dialogue. After Ronald Reagan uh, lost the nomination in 76 to Gerald Ford, he embarked on uh, on a major effort to understand and flesh out uh, uh, his belief that there was it was time for a major change of direction. And he traveled the world with Dick Allen and some Rand Corporation people spent time with Helmut Schmidt in Germany and Kohl and spent time with Maggie Thatcher and others in the UK, went to Japan and sat with their leaders and elsewhere and read the literature in in depth. Sam Huntington helped put together reading lists, Strauss of Pay at Penn did, and uh, of course Dick Allen was kind of the director of studies, but he really did his homework. 
who was in, as you as you as you well know, but not everyone who's listening will know, was very was very involved here at CSIS. Yes, absolutely. Dick Dick was one of the founders. Of, yeah, this in many ways is origin of uh, of where it all started. And so it's uh, great to be back. And, we we uh, miss you. We sh- well, I want you to come here more often, <laughs> Secretary. Well, thank you. I accept. Uh, <laughs> Talk about, so the title's called Oceans Ventured. So you've described all this background. There's the theory of c- command of the seas. There's the There's been some thinking. There's been ferment. There's been 20 years of distraction, two decades of distraction somewhere, some far off place. And there's a decision that we need to take the country in a different direction. I want to come back to this, but it sounds a little familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to come back to that. But what you specifically use the title Oceans Ventured. And I know why you use it, but not everyone else in this who's listening is going to know why you use the term Oceans Ventured. What is Ocean Venture 81? Because I think it's related to this title. No, there's other reasons to call it Oceans Ventured. But what is Ocean Ventured 81? Well, uh, that's, that's a very good question because obviously the strategy involved uh, building our forces, not just building them and building a big navy, but using it, using it in peacetime to demonstrate what we would do if the Soviets crossed the line using their land power against NATO. And that involved getting back into those areas where the Soviets were most vulnerable in the northern, being essentially a, a, a northern power, uh, in the North Atlantic, the Barents Sea, the Bering Sea, the North Pacific, and to show that we could demonstrate up there, the difficult areas, nobody likes to operate up there because there's snowstorms, there's 50-foot waves, there are storms and uh, ice and snow and... It's horrible. It is hard. It's really, it's, it, and you capture that in the book, how darn hard it is yeah. to operate up there. You describe landing a plane on an aircraft in the dark in a snowstorm. <laughs> yeah, in a, yeah. I'm just, you know, the boat moving around moving side right. to side. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. It is. It is very difficult, and you have to. In the destroyers, they they were having to send sailors climbing up the mast with hammers to knock the ice off the. Uh, off the radars so they could revolve. And uh, I remember the first time I landed in the, in uh, uh, one of the uh, fjords when we put the carriers into the Norwegian fjords. Which so let me just a, stop you. So you were Secretary of the Navy at the time. Yes. So you, you landed a plane yourself. Yeah, I, I was a, a naval aviator. and flew in the, as a reservist uh, with the active forces for 20-some years and, and stayed current. While I was Secretary of the Navy, that's one of the reasons it's the best job in the world. It's got <laughs> 7,000 airplanes, and uh, if you're a pilot, it's great. But I was also a bombardier navigator on the A-6, and that's what I flew uh, on, the fjord, uh, on the fjord missions. And I'll never forget the first hop when we were in there. We were coming through a big snowstorm. It wasn't a big snowstorm. It was a snow squall, but lots of snow. And we broke out right. There's some good pictures in the book of the snow-covered decks. God and so we, we broke out about a quarter of a mile behind the ship, and no problem seeing the ship because it was covered with snow. It was white. Operating in the fjord, everybody up to that point said, you can't operate in the Norwegian fjords. It's too confined, and the air wing requires a lot of airspace to operate safely, and uh, we proved that we could. But it was scary flying, that's for sure, because <coughs> on this flight, for instance, 
when we broke out, it looked like the carrier was heading for a 3,000-foot cliff. It looked right away as about a half a mile away. It was really a, not that close. And there are willy was, there are weird down blasts, and, you know, operate, because there are 3,000-foot mountains on both sides of the two big fjords in Norway. It's amazing. And that's what makes them so great to operate the carriers, because the Soviet aircraft, patrol aircraft, can't find them. They're in, they operate in the shadow of the mountains, the radar shadows. But it also makes for scary, scary flying, yeah. The book has fabulous pictures. Uh, well, thank you. Most of them are U.S. Navy pictures, but... But what it was, Secretary, was an unbelievably audacious idea of saying, we're going ma- to marshal secretly a massive naval armada, and we're going to go right up into their, right under their nose, like right here, I'm pointing right under my nose, of the Soviet Union. And they're not going to know it until right under their nose. Right. Wasn't that what this That's, was? Well, you uh, back to your, your question, why is it called Ocean Venture, and what was Ocean Venture 81? Uh, President Reagan had campaigned on this forward strategy. It was actually in the Republican platform, even though it was a bipartisan uh, approach. And wh- he was elected on it quite decisively. And so during the interim, we began to implement the plan, and he, he said, well, what can we, we're certainly going to rebuild the Navy, we're going to make our position clear, it's not just, not just a political just position, a line. but how do we show the Soviets that this is real, this is a major change in direction, it's just, not just an average political uh, campaign. A slogan. Uh, a slogan, exactly. And... So we said, well, every year NATO does a big exercise uh, with uh, up to 200 ships, but they're not allowed because NATO has become so defensive that they don't want to upset the Soviets by going anywhere near their vulnerable areas. So they have drawn a kind of arbitrary line between Greenland, Iceland, the United Kingdom, and the continent. G-I-U-K. That's right. G-I-U-K gap, we called it. And that was a kind of a Maginot line above which, for 20 years, the NATO exercises were not allowed to go because that would be too close to the Soviet Union. And too provocative. Too provocative, exactly. And so we said, uh, President Reagan had asked us, well, where, you know, what can we do to show them this is, this is real? And we said, well, we have, we have Ocean Venture 81 coming up. And if you approve it, we will, instead of going back and forth under the GI-UK gap, we'll turn left at the Davis Straits and go up into the Norwegian Sea and start practicing our strikes and uh, operations up there to prove to the Soviets that we can do it and they can't stop us. And he liked that. But we said there's one problem. (coughs) You can't put this into the normal JCS process. What's Joint Chiefs of Staff? Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, And uh, uh, because, you know, the the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have a staff of 6,000 souls, and this this will be a major change of direction. And it's got to be secret. It will will be bound to leak. And if it leaks, then there'll be a demand, there'll be uh, studies for the next five years before we take such a dramatic step. So you've got to keep this uh, Navy Air Force only 
and don't put it into the the usual system the usual system or it will leak and you won't be able to do it and so he approved that and and, and we said there's no reason for you to do that because we're not doing anything, nor there's no order ordering us uh, not to uh, go anywhere. It's uh, it's just been a, a practice that has been unchallenged for 20 years. So if you say, turn left, there we're not violating any law or directive or anything else. And uh, uh, so we, uh, he said, okay, let's do that. He said, but what about NATO? And he said, you can't tell NATO either because, you know, we will certainly be working with the NATO navies. But by and large, the Royal Navy never tells its ministry what they're doing anyway. And the ministry doesn't care because most people in NATO headquarters and ministries have no idea what the navies do. They, in fact, many of them don't even know that Navy ships are are not solid like their old toy boats. So, <laughs> so uh, it, 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 there's no necessity to, to put it into that. Uh, into that system. That system. So he said, okay, so that's what we did. We launched August 26th in, in uh, 81 and turned left at the Davis Strait, went north with 83 ships, including two U.S. aircraft carriers, uh, with a British jump jet carrier and four helicopter carriers, plus all the destroyers and cruisers and amphibs with the Marines. Oh and, and the first the Soviets knew we were up there when Ace Lyons, who was the, uh, the strike fleet commander, uh, commander of the second fleet, kind of the Navy's uh, general patent, I'm quite a controversial, but a real warfighter, he came. He sent a flight of four F-14s, four A-6s, and four A-6 tankers up into an exercise that intelligence had informed him about, going on right off Murmansk around the northern Cape. So this is on the, in the Soviet Union, on a sort of on a peninsula up in northern yes. northern northern Soviet Union. That's far, right. Far, far, north. far up. So in our the, intelligence knew yeah. this was going yes. on. Yes. Yeah. And so. He thought the uh, Admiral Lyons thought it'd be a, 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 a nice touch <laughs> to uh, fly right through the middle of it. It was international airspace, and show them that we were there within sort of to say it's literally on their doorstep. Yeah, in the middle of an operation that they are conducting on their doorstep in international waters. Right. To be completely undetected, this massive armada of over 80 ships, an international armada, by yeah, the way. Right. The General Patton of the of the U.S. Navy, Ace, Ace Lyon, says, yeah. I'm going to send this massive show of a naval air force, air power, mm -hmm. into the middle of a Soviet operation. Yep, yep. I, I would assume, I, I it's in the book, but just describe a little bit the reaction from the Soviets at this. <laughs> Yeah, well, they were uh, gobsmacked by it. They had no That's the think tank contingency. term. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> now, there was a, there's a moment where one of the Soviet pilots reacts, in, and there's this scrambling, and there's this tense moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that's an interesting uh, side touch. Anyway, you know, at the time, uh, the common wisdom in academic and armchair strategy circles was that carriers were of little use because you couldn't, their range, the range of their aircraft was only, you know, two or three hundred miles and they couldn't affect much having to do with Europe anyway. Well, this flight of 12 jets 
flew a thousand miles <gasps> from the carrier. They launched uh, launched from the the Eisenhower and flew a thousand miles, f- blew through this formation of the Soviets uh, at 550 knots and kind of waved at them and uh, <laughs> went back. And the Soviets just didn't know how to cope with it. They had no contingency plans. So they mobilized, they launched everything they could get to fly, all the ships that were able to sortie out from the White Sea, uh, all of the submarines they had. Where the hell is the fleet? They knew because these were carrier aircraft. They knew they had to come from the carriers. And they couldn't detect the carriers. Where carrier. are the carriers? They didn't know where the carriers no, were. No, I had no idea they were north of the GIF gap. In and fact, they've been they hiding were, behind the, the fjords? No, no, they didn't go into the fjords until a few years later. Okay. Because, uh, and I'll tell you how we refined these exercises. We did them every year from then on. And we refined them and improved them. And as we deployed more and more of the technology, uh, we uh, and we saw what tactics worked against the Soviets and what they couldn't cope with, uh, how we could hide from them, how we could totally uh, obfuscate what we were doing. We refined them every year. But on this one occasion, we were a little tense because, uh, as you know, during the Cold War, the Soviets and indeed uh, the Chinese uh, at some points, had shot down our reconnaissance aircraft that came too close to the Soviet Union. So this was the first time we'd done this up that far north. You know, we wanted to pay close attention, so we had very strict rules of engagement. So, Secretary, this was a game-changing moment. One of the less reasons I know you wanted to write this is that Ronald Reagan helped win the Cold War. Yes. And it's fair to say, right? Isn't that, that yes. fair to say? Yes, indeed. And is it also fair to say, given the conversation we've just had, that the na- naval power was decisive and critical, and the Soviets were afraid of it and saw it as one of our most important levers that we had and was very critical to us winning the Cold War? That, that's absolutely right, because we demonstrated to them that not only could we operate up there, but that we also had the range and the capability with both cruise missiles and strike aircraft to strike deep into the Soviet Union and deep into the central front of Europe from the northern and the southern flanks and in the Pacific because we did, we did the same kind of exercise the following January in, in uh, NORPAC in the northern Pacific and demonstrated to them they couldn't, as they had planned in a NATO, their NATO strategy was that if if war broke out and they decided to invade in Western Europe, they could shift uh, uh, several dozen uh, army divisions and air divisions to support NATO from the Eastern Soviet Union uh, and the Pacific uh, area. And we demonstrated to them that they could not do that, and not only that, that we could strike virtually with impunity at some of the most strategic bases in Vladivostok, Petropavlovsk, and other areas in in uh, Eastern uh, Soviet Union. So it was it was to demonstrate that we could do it. We could decisively apply power uh, from the sea all around their periphery, and they couldn't stop us. Real power. The the incredible pro global economic and social progress and political progress we've had in the last since the end of the Cold War, I think has been underwritten by American security power. That is why I wanted you on this, to be on this, to have this Hmm. conversation with you. So I completely agree with that statement. Let me take something else. So the other important 
The lesson of this book is that we must restore the capability of our naval forces and sailors, not because we might have to go to war with North Korea, Russia, Iran, or some other adversary. I'll, I'll, use, I'll, I'll put the word in there, China. Um, but because we must prevent having to go to war at all. Yes, I mean, that's, that, that is what defense is all about. It's about deterrence. And deterrence is not a, an abstruse, complicated term. It's simply demonstrating, and not just declaring, but demonstrating to your potential adversaries and your friends that if your adversaries sought to use their power against the Western alliance and the United States, that uh, they would suffer far more in consequences than they could ever gain by using a military perceived superiority. And that's all deterrence is. And, and you can't do it just by declarative policy, by speaking loudly and not carrying a big stick. And it is very much within our reach. This is not calling for a, a huge increase in defense expenditures or a huge change in, in the direction of our national security policy. It is very achievable. It needs to be a believable and bipartisan and sustainable and when you get that, that is why I said, as you quoted earlier, that you get 90% of the benefit in the first year or two of such a new change. Because once your adversaries and friends see that this is real, it's happening, it's not just rhetoric, it's not just a tweet, that you then get the deterrence back even before you rebuild the forces that are able to carry it out. Secretary Lehman, what a pleasure. I've been talking to you about Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea. I want to encourage everyone to go out and read this book. I think it's not only an important book to set the record straight on Cold War history, because a lot of the material here is declassified, yeah. but also to remember that Ronald Reagan was really critical in winning the Cold War, and that naval power was really critical in winning the Cold War. But in addition to that, that having naval power and sending signals to our adversaries and to our friends alike that we're serious about remaining a global power and backing it up, that that's a form of deterrence, and that's really critical. So I think it's a very timely book, and I want to encourage everyone to go out and read it. Well, thank you, and uh, I really have enjoyed this, and I'm glad to be back here uh, where it all started. We miss you, and we're going to have you here more often, Secretary. <laughs>